Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Like everything else in business, real estate is all about timing. Starting back in the 80s, outlet malls were popping up all over the country. Then in the 90s, self-storage started to grow. Today's guest is truly a real estate visionary and has been able to capitalize on trends before the rest of the market has caught up. Adam Gordon is based in New York City and is the president of Wildflower LTD, Madison Development, and Adam Gordon Holdings. His latest project is a 750,000 square foot project he's doing with Robert De Niro in Queens. You know, I always say this when I start these interviews, uh, you know, because I always say that I have some highly accomplished, highly skilled real estate entrepreneur, and that is always true. But I, I'm going to say at the risk of sounding, um, you know, like I'm fawning all over this guy. This guy is a big swing and you know what, uh, has done some amazing things in New York City in the boroughs and is just a dyed in the wool real estate entrepreneur who's just accomplished amazing things. So Adam Gordon, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you. I don't know where we're going to go from here. That's great. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I need you in the mornings like, with my coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, an, I have another suggestion for the mornings, which is just the weirdest thing. I started doing this six months ago because like really successful like guru guys like Tony Robbins do this. Is sure. they take They take a cold shower in the right. morning. Wim Hof. I know it. Have you done it? I've tried it. It's not for me, but definitely a lot of the rest of what Tony Robbins does, uh, you know, I try to ascribe to in the morning. I do a meditation headspace for 10 minutes and then I get my puer tea. I try to exercise in the morning and then do some reading, something other than business. So I kind of prime my day a little bit and I find uh, it sets me up for a great day. So uh, it's become a habit. What time do you get up? I get up early, so I'm I'm not a lot of fun at night. I'm probably in bed uh, nine-ish, and then I'm up somewhere between five and six every morning. The more I read, the more I think that that's a real common thing for uber-successful people. My experience, too, is, is in, in you and I, for the audience's sake, discover that we're literally one week apart from each other in age when we were brought into this earth. But I'm I'm finding as I get older, I'm just useless in the afternoon anyway. Yeah. I mean, in the development business, a lot of what's happening is getting people moving, whether it's moving on a job, moving with a financing and acquisition. And so the utility of the mornings versus the afternoon is some multiple. And so it's not only we're probably both morning people, but also in terms of accomplishing goals, the morning is so, so much more efficient than the afternoon for everybody that we're involved in. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, simple stuff, but it's like how true. And the other thing, the other thing I keep reading over and over again is what they say, kind of eating the frog, which is doing the hardest thing first. Um, yes. You know, and just uh, so much of the stuff for me anyway, so much of the stuff, I, I get distracted easily with stuff I really don't need to do. And so just 
you know, doing the hardest thing first, getting going early. So I'm going to ask you, Adam, there's three stools and there's probably more, but there's three stools that I gathered about you kind of in your three legs in your stool. There's Adam Gordon Holdings that was, I guess, was your first deal started at 89 was my guess. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong when you probably first went on on your own. There's Madison Development, which is self-storage. And then there's Wildflower. And I want to get to all of these things. But how did you start out in 89? I know just poking around on the site, I know you've done super high-end residential, you know, really cool stuff with with legacy houses that are, you know, hundred years old and rehabbing them with just incredible right. and detail and all that. Right. Well, when I left Bear Stearns in the late 80s, it was to become a real estate entrepreneur and I saw the factory outlet store market burgeoning in a little town called Manchester, Vermont. And I saw shopping centers that had local tenants paying two, three, four, five, six dollars a foot in rent. And then I saw global factory outlet tenants like Ralph Lauren paying 25 to 30 dollars a foot in rent. And I thought if I could purchase a local shopping center, vacate it and replace those local tenants with global factory outlet store tenants that uh, I could improve the rent roll in a really significant, significant way. And so that's what I did. So I bought my first shopping center. I was 29. I went out to 43 lenders, got 42 turndowns. Now this was well before the internet. So I literally put together books, which I velo bound, and then I carried them around. And there were used to be books that you would buy that had would list, they'd have lists of lenders. So I got New England lenders. And so I called them up. I went in to see their real estate finance guys. They had uh, a guy sitting at a desk with a plaque and I drop off my velo bound book. And then I would talk to him about the deal. And he would say no, because there was no reason to lend to a 29 year old with no money or experience. Uh, But finally, the bank that had a branch in the shopping center I wanted to buy took an interest in the deal, probably more than me and uh, gave me a loan. And so I purchased that property. I had uh, about $60,000 in savings at that point, And I invested 55000 in the deal and I was off and running. So my first kind of foray as a principal with significance was, was there in Manchester, Vermont. And I, and I continued to work there originally under a company called Dorset Partners because my family lived in Dorset, Vermont. And then it Adam Gordon Holdings. So you said, I think you said that they had at that bank, they were there in the center. You say they had more of an interest than you. I, I think you said something along those lines. And why was that for their own self-interest so they could do more business as the bank? I think so. Yeah, I think they, I think they wanted to support the purchase of the shopping center because they were tenants there. But it was just really, I talk about really running a good process so if you run a good process, you can kind of release yourself from the results. So in going out to 43 lenders, I ran the right process. I happened to ultimately get the right result, which is to get my deal funded. Just it only takes one guy to take an interest in you. It's sort of the outlier concept. You don't need 43 loan options. You really need one. Ideally, you'd have more. 
but if you have one, at least you can get your deal closed. For some reason, and it's it's probably not analogous, but I guess what went on in my mind is is I guess that uh, it probably not you probably don't want to be compared to Colonel Sanders, but I guess the story is he's tried to sell that chicken to like you know so many different places before somebody took his offer and and just that persistence of burnt shoe leather. Um, and I understand what you're saying about about nailing the process down, but even still, it's impressive that you get 42 no's and in one yes right out of the gate at the beginning of this interview, because my belief is that most people would have stopped at like five no's. I think that at you know, the end of uh, how I built this interview or a lot of the interviewers, they say, are you lucky? Do you find yourself lucky? And I, I would say I'm not particularly lucky at all. Um, I mean, sure, we're all lucky to be born and we're all lucky to uh, have, have time here, but I don't think I was particularly lucky at all. I think I was persistent as hell. And I think over time, by modeling myself after successful people, I developed a series of strategies that worked. And I persisted with those more than most people. So I think maybe I'm just uh, not a sprinter, but I think I've been an endurance athlete in terms of the way that I have run a process with businesses I'm interested in. And looking at a lot of businesses and not being afraid if they don't make sense to not pursue them. And we're doing that all the time and we're still doing it with with our business today. So we're constantly looking at new opportunities. We're running a process down to see if they're sensible. And if they make sense, they pursue them. And if they don't make sense, then we we move on. I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but I got into a debate with a friend of mine uh, on a ski slope a couple of years ago who believes that we were talking about, I don't know why we're talking about, you know, billionaire guys like the Jeff Bezos of the world. And he believes they're lucky. And um, I agree with you. I'm in a different business than you. And not that it's critically important, but not of the scale that you've done or even close, but it's been successful and it's been really successful. It's because I'm incredibly persistent. If I were smarter, I probably would have been less persistent at many points along the way, but I didn't know what I didn't know when I was younger. And I just kept going and 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 and eventually broke through and nailed a niche down. And, And so persistence, I get it. So you put 55 grand in out of 60, which is another component. There was nothing lucky about you being willing to risk, you know, 90% of your net worth, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but when that's everything you have, it's a lot. How much was the project? And what, what was the acquisition price and all that? The project was a million two thirty-five, and uh, with closing costs, it was, uh, you know, probably a hundred thousand dollars more than that or something. Within the first year I had developed, it was 40% vacant when I purchased it. I did my own leasing, signed a lease for all the vacant space. Within uh, the first year, there was over $100,000 of cash flow, and I didn't have partners in that deal. So I was kind of on my way. So it was it was transformative for me. Yeah, right, right on. Did you reach out or did you do any kind of research to validate what you're doing, reaching out to any of these global brands to go, would you be interested in this? Or was it or was it this gut? You saw the trend, you bought it, and, and once it closed, and then you started reaching out? I've never been a 
I guess what I would say, a gut buyer. I've always really tried to look at statistics and look at analysis and do research and try to be very curious because it's not difficult to learn a new business. There's always an industry association. In those days, there were always handbooks. So there was a factory outlet store handbook and I made a ton of calls. There are always people in the business who are experts, some self-proclaimed, some real, but I try to talk to all of them. So I spoke with leasing brokers and it was really clear after doing all my research what the opportunity was in the market. Uh, and so I got my share, but I mean, I would say if I were to look back on my experience in Vermont, I had some good first deals and I made every possible mistake you could make as a real estate person. I can't say professional because so many things I did were unprofessional, but I did my own leasing, management, construction supervision, accounting, finance, uh, zoning. I did it all. And that was uh, for me. And I kind of look back on that time with fondness and wincing but that was kind of my second MBA. Wow. Sounds like it could have been worth more than your first, potentially. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of a business school education at whatever level. I'm not sure today you need an MBA the way you did when I graduated, but I was a poli-sci undergrad uh, at Michigan and I worked for two years and then I went into Wharton for an MBA and I didn't know anything. And so taking a finance class, an accounting class, a management class, a marketing class taught me skill and a structure and a way to look at and evaluate business problems that I, I wouldn't have had otherwise. So uh, I'm really I'm grateful. And I don't think that I would have been able to accomplish what I did without going to school. Do you come from a line of entrepreneurs? No, not at all. And my father, who passed away a few months ago, always thought I was crazy and that uh, I should have gone to work at a corporation and been kind of a brown shoe tie guy uh, working for an insurance company or a commercial bank. And he never, he never either related or supported any of these things that I did. Wow. Related is one thing. Supported is another. That's a, that's heavy. No, I mean, not at all. I don't, uh, I don't want to sugarcoat it and say, Oh, you know, my parents were always there and thought what I did was fantastic. And my dad, uh, uh, you know, eviscerated his IRA to give me money. My parents didn't think what I did made any sense at all. <laughs> just, they, they were never in favor of it. Even once you had demonstrated unequivocal, irrefutable success? There was the front page of the Manchester Journal, which was this tiny town. There was an article that I, I was 30 and I bought, I had bought another property and they said, Adam Gordon becomes the largest retail property owner in Manchester, Vermont. And I was playing tennis with my dad and a couple of his buddies. My dad had retired and uh, they said, Hey, you must be so proud of your son. And my dad said, don't believe everything you read. So that was in part his generation. Maybe he was competitive. I don't know what the deep psychology is, but the entrepreneurial path for me was definitely a lonely one early on. Wow. But I didn't feel like I had a choice. You know, I was not a corporate guy and I was really curious about these things. And I wanted, I didn't want to be uh, poor. Uh, frankly, I wanted to achieve financial security. 
Um, and I really loved the real estate business from the beginning. I took a class at school and I just felt it. So on this uh, version of Shark Tank, or I don't know, I saw Mark Cuban being interviewed is the point, And he was talking about his parents. And here's what he, he just said. They just cry. That's what he said. In other words, just tears of just joy and proud. That's just indescribable because he's Mark Cuban. He's a multi-billionaire. He owns the Dallas Mavericks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess my question to you, and I guess I'm pushing it because it's so interesting. You got to a point, I mean, you were developing like down the road here, self-storage, a couple hundred thousand square feet and arguably one of the biggest real estate markets in the world, right? So at this point, any objective measures like this guy is really, really successful. Are you saying that your dad's view didn't necessarily change from that first, okay, you know, you bought a shopping center, you're in Manchester, you're the biggest uh, retail real estate guy. And okay, that's one thing. All right, don't believe. Are you saying he didn't move from that view ever? Never, never. No. Wow. No. I mean, I was, I was really fortunate that um, I had a mentor for many, many years until he passed away. And I think he gave me those kind of that support. Uh, he was a real estate developer from Ohio. And even though we never worked or did a deal together, he and I spoke on the phone probably weekly for maybe 20 years. Uh, so I got a lot of that from Alan, but I never really know it wasn't coming from home. Wow, man. Jeez. You have siblings? I do. I have a sister who's a social worker in Chicago. And uh, totally, totally different path. Not entrepreneurial, has been in the same job for 30 years, has a completely different life and outlook and interest, even though we grew up in the same household. So what did your dad do? He was a corporate executive. He, he um, grew up, uh, he was first generation to go to college, put himself through City College and Columbia Law School, had a successful corporate career, retired at 49. And then um, sat me down and uh, I was 21 and he said, look, I'm retiring and, you know, I've made enough to support myself through my life and support uh, your mother. And he said, uh, there's nothing for you. He said, we're going to spend all our money and live a long life. And uh, if we pass and there's anything left, we're going to give it to your sister, who at that time was already a social worker. Uh, <laughs> And that's true. He he died pretty much. He spent all of his money and maybe a little little bit of mine and uh, never got anything from him other than an education, which I'm grateful for. But no, that was it. Okay. So I'm going to ask one more question and I'm going to, and then I'm going to move on. So aside from this, like if you can't even move it aside, was there any good parts of the relationship? Like, or was that, or does that essentially describe the totality of the relationship? No, I mean, it was, it's a complicated relationship, but I consider myself like many people to be kind of anti-fragile, meaning that you know, I grew up in a very tumultuous household, really challenged household, but that gave me a lot of inner strength, which I'm grateful for. And, you know, perseverance and grit and determination, which has been really helpful for me in my career and in my life, you know, it got me out of Ohio to New York, accomplishing things, uh, you know, having a successful marriage and wonderful 
kids. And so I'm super grateful for that. I don't consider it a burden. I think it's an opportunity. You know, I think that you've got to be tested. It's, it's kind of like most of the people that I work with in my company are athletes because they're used to winning and losing. They're used to training and they set goals for themselves and achievements and they understand that it's not easy. You know, you got to just get out there and persevere. So I've got kind of that attitude, I think, which was set up for me in childhood, maybe not for the reasons that my parents assumed, but, but it's worked out that way. Very interesting. Okay. So, so, you know, so you buy the, the shopping center, you put it kind of all on the line in a year, you're cash flowing a hundred grand on, on 55 grand, not, not bad at all. So kind of like, where did you go from there? Well, I, I bought another property there. I built my cash flow to probably 250 ish a year over a couple of years, which back in the early 90s was worth a lot more than it is today, but it's still really very, very attractive. Especially in um, that, that was a nasty recession in the early 90s. Too. Yes. To, to boot, yeah. 250 grand was off of passive real estate income would have been amazing. So I, you know, I spent time doing that and uh, Vermont was very anti-growth, anti-development. It was contentious. People did not want to see their town overrun by factory outlets, which it ultimately was. And I kind of felt like I was uh, in a small town hitting a ceiling because ultimately in real estate, it's about demographics, meaning that you can't fight population. New York City is so attractive because the population is overwhelming. And so if you're in the right position to fulfill demand, demand is there for you. In Manchester, Vermont, which was a town of, I'm going to guess, 10,000 people, you don't have a lot of demand. So the generators are much more fragile. So I really wanted to get to New York and then I had a conversation with somebody and uh, he was trying to buy one of one of these Vermont properties. He started telling me about urban infill self-storage, something I knew nothing about. And I got curious about it. And I went to see a property that his brother was developing. He was just starting a company. And um, then I went to meet more people and I went to uh, an industry function and I bought the books and I decided to pivot into self-storage. What year? That was uh, roughly 2000, roughly so, 2000. So it was about about nine or nine or so years after I got into the factory outlet store business. How many factory outlets did you do? I did um, two projects in Manchester, totaling at that time about uh, 90,000 square feet. Got it. And then you just, and you ran those, you said for like nine years. Yes. Okay. And then you got into self-storage and there was some article written about you and, and it had this kind of offhanded reference about Adam Gordon developer who made his fortune in self-storage. So I guess my question is just in the overall picture of everything you've done, is there a shade of truth to that clause? Is that essentially true? Is that kind of where you really kind of um, hit it? There were two things happening. So I got into the self-storage business and then I was always interested in design. And I would, this is before Pinterest, I would cut out little rooms that I liked or furniture and I put them in notebooks and 
when my first son was born, which was, uh, he's 22, so 20, 22 or 23 years ago, we bought a raw space loft in Soho and I got my design books out and I hired a young architect who'd left a, an established firm and we renovated that apartment. And um, my wife at the time, my first wife didn't like living downtown. She wanted to be uptown and Upper East Side. And when we went to sell that apartment, I sold it for twice what I had in it. And I thought, this is interesting. It's design, which I love. I saw the margins and um, I felt like uh, I could get my design jollies there. So I, for the next 10 or 15 years, ran two businesses. I had a storage business and I had a, a luxury residential business. So the storage business was the first time I realized there was scale and that scale wasn't harder. It was actually easier. So we sold a portfolio three years after I got into the storage business for $90 million or so. And I made real money for me. And I sort of, I kept going. So I was looking at Manchester, Vermont, you know, I would build one storage project, which is the size of everything I did in Manchester. And it was one tenth of the work I was developing in New York city. I was lucky enough to meet a partner who was in industry, Steve McKnight. We started Madison development together for storage. And then I had this other residential business where I was redeveloping properties in New York city and Manhattan for the one-tenth of 1%. So I was selling townhouses from five to close to $20 million each. And that was at the time also a really lucrative business. So first of all, the, the um, first portfolio you sold for 90 mil, what did you buy it for? I guess it was probably a number of properties, but what did you have into it? We made, uh, let's see, 37, 40. I would say we made almost double what we had in it. In, in uh, my partners and I, in that first in that first portfolio, um, we were building these deals to I'm going to say uh, rough close to a ten cap. Mm -hmm. I don't have the you don't have the numbers in front of me, and we sold it for probably around a four and a half or five cap. So it was it was a very lucrative business at the time. So when we you had a very good trade. Well, sorry, when you, you said you're getting into them at a 10 cap, were they developing, developing, we were developing self storage at a, a 10% cash on cost, roughly depending on the deal. And that was originally buying old warehouse buildings and adding units and building an office and creating self storage as a redevelopment. And then the market moved to doing new construction meaning building ground up. So you would buy a piece of land or buy land with buildings, remove the buildings and build ground up multi-story self-storage in New York City. Were you able to uh, do that stuff at a 10 cap because you were kind of ahead of the curve in terms of seeing the potential, I, you know, again, in, in, in one of the most competitive real estate markets in the world? Was it that being said, it's just you saw something and you're, you know, that a lot of people didn't see? I did at that point in time, 20 years ago, and it's hard to understand now, um, institutional capital was not flowing into the boroughs, Brooklyn, Bronx, and Queens. It was considered low income, non-white, and in their mind, unattractive. But in my mind and in, in my partner's mind, we're colorblind. We thought you have the highest rents in the country for self-storage. 
smaller units. So the absolute expenditure, meaning a five by five foot, they were getting in the 20s and now in the 30s or 40s, $40 per square foot per year. And so we were seeing extremely high rents in the in the boroughs. And what we tried to create is an institutional quality project that somebody from say Chicago could relate to. So we were really early in that game. And if you're early and right, the margins are there. If you're early and wrong, obviously it's challenging, but people had come before us. So we were not the very first pioneer. Um, So it was really lucrative. And so we did that until 2008 or so. And then we basically stopped development in the city in self-storage. And the reason is not because we saw the oncoming recession, because we didn't have a, a perfect crystal ball or Ouija board. It was really because people had figured out what we were doing and what other people were doing. And there was a margin compression. And instead of building at a 10, we saw guys building at a five or six. They thought they were building at a 10, but we we knew enough because we had actually been developing. We knew what costs were. We knew what challenges they were going to encounter. And so uh, my partner and I decided to stop. And so I continued doing some residential and we sold our portfolio and uh, just held on to one property, which we ultimately sold to public storage later. And then he and I had lunch through the recession. That was kind of our communication. We got together and we did that until after the recession in 2011, when we saw the capital markets open up again, and we decided to go build another storage portfolio. Um, At that point in time, I, I wanted more scale and I knew that we needed help. So we formed a bigger company. We brought in a proper CFO who came from a fund, Matt Dicker, who came from Canyon, who is extremely talented and understood the capital markets. And so we started growing again. And right now, I mean, we're, we have three strategies. We have a portfolio with a cost basis of over a billion dollars. Um, I would assume value is, you know, a billion and a half or more. So are you going to, will you sell it? Well, will you sell it a, and will you sell it to a REIT or what would be the exit? So we're, we're interested in three different strategies. We have our kind of legacy portfolio of self-storage. We have streaming content. So we're building a film studio in Astoria and we have e-commerce and logistics, warehouses and parking. So we're the Amazon's most active e-commerce developer in the city right now. We're on deal number eight or nine. We sold the storage portfolio about two years ago for $187 million. And we probably have another $150 billion-ish or so of storage. We'll ultimately sell the storage because you can't eat promote, meaning you got to monetize promote in development deals. So ultimately we'll be, we'll be selling the storage. Uh, we love the e-commerce business. So, um, our idea is to hold on to those properties. And then the film studio is under construction right now. So we have a long way to go. So the portfolio three years ago, like who, what kind of entity acquired that? Uh, we sold it to uh, Prime Group, which is the largest aggregator of self-storage properties in the country. Is that a public company or a private? It's private. Got it. Okay. Where are they based? They're based in upstate New York. In upstate New York. Wow. 
Interesting. So, you know, the residential side sounds sounds sexy. Are you still doing that? The last residential project I did was uh, approximately, I completed it approximately five and a half years ago. The sexiest thing in the real estate business is recurring income. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I, it, for anybody, and it's funny when we go talk to uh, people at business schools or talk to young people getting into the business, they're so excited about the luxury condominium work. The most important skill in luxury condominium development is timing, which is not a skill at all. That's just dumb luck. And early developers, uh, the beginning of the cycle can do really well. And great developers at the end of the cycle can get creamed, which is happening right now. I don't like the business at all. And uh, we'll never build another residential project because it's timing dependent, it's tax inefficient. The kind of obsessive attention to detail that interested me is impossible at scale. And the kind of problems that we're solving don't exist in residential at the luxury end. You're not really solving any problem. You're helping kind of wealthy people find a pretty place to live. And selecting uh, marble countertops is just not a challenge that really enthuses me right now. I'd rather think about urban infrastructure and uh, delivering vital services to people or finding a, a campus where people can create content uh, and tell their stories or urban infrastructure challenges. So I, I think that's really it. It's it's that the business really is not as attractive, but also um, it doesn't really have any purpose or intention. Correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the things you did was literally buying, for lack of a better word, mansions and selling, you said, in the 5 to $20 million range. Did I interpret that right? That's right. So it, when I started in the business, you could take these mansions that in New York's uh, dark days in the 70s and 80s were converted into little apartment buildings and you would buy them vacant or people would leave and then you could convert them back into single family homes. This was really before the big condo boom of family sized condo apartments. So if somebody wanted three, four, five, 6,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet. One of the only ways to get it was a condo. The other thing that was at play in New York, particularly uptown, is they had cooperatives. So a cooperative could decide if somebody was the right kind of person in their mind for any reason or no reason to get into their building. And a lot of people who uh, were successful, who were entrepreneurs, couldn't gain access to those buildings on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue because they weren't, you know, quote unquote, the right kind of person. And so they would go to townhouses. And so I kind of saw that market opportunity and tried to fill it. But it was not a business that had any kind of scale. It was lucrative, but it was sort of one deal at a time. And when I started exploring the self-storage business, I just saw it was so much easier. You, know, you could have you could have scale, you could multiply, you didn't you didn't have to create this unique offering. Um, and instead of having a binary outcome where you sell to one wealthy person who likes it or not, you had thousands of tenants. So you're talking about the studio, which is just fascinating. So I guess it's in Queens, it's 700,000 square feet. And so like, what's the 
studio mind. And I guess Robert De Niro, you're doing it with who, um, yes, I would say you're a, a much more handsome, you know, and younger looking Jewish Robert De Niro ish kind of guy. <laughs> I'm not sure how many people would agree with that, but I appreciate it. I think um, <laughs> he and I became friends and he had a vision for creating a studio campus where people would be proud to go to work and tell their stories. And the talent, if by talent, meaning not only actors and actresses, but also grip lighting, cameramen, producers tend to live in New York City and LA. And there's a shortage of high quality studio space. And so the idea was to create a campus where people would be proud and excited to go to work and tell their stories in all forms. So that's, you know, that's film, that's serial TV, like you would watch on Netflix or Disney plus, um, that's AR VR gaming. And at one level, we know how to build big boxes because we do that in self storage and we do that in logistics. So it's a big box to a different spec, but then there's also a lot of design intention. So we, we were able to collaborate with Bjarke Engels, his firm is called Big, and uh, Bjarke, who runs that Danish and New York-based architecture firm, happens to be a film nut. Uh, wow. And so it's been, really, it's been really exciting to work on that project. So it, it's ground up, correct? Or? It's, it's ground up. It's, it's a vertical studio, so you have stages stacked over each other. It's all lifted so that we can have parking underneath. And in the event of a Hurricane Sandy event, the studio wouldn't be wiped out. The water would go in through the parking structure and out again. So it's very sustainable. So it's a really innovative, groundbreaking project. How many floors? It's in, I'm sorry. It's, it works out parking and two floors of studios on top. And then um, their offices and support space. So it's roughly a hundred and I believe it's 140 feet tall. Got it. Okay. So it's, it covers up a lot of, a lot of space on the grid. It's not a, it's not a high rise. It's, it's not a high rise. It's, you know, roughly 760,000 feet and at full capacity is going to create 1500 or 2000 jobs in New York city. Um, virtually all of them union. How many tenants? I guess you'll have to see, but what's the sense of that? There'll be 11 stages. So it could be 11 different productions operating simultaneously. So it's going to be a real hive of activity. So you could, if you're a TV fan, they could be shooting Blue Bloods on one stage and All American on a second and a reality TV show if it's if it's in a stage uh, in a third. When does it get complete? We're roughly two and a half years away from completion now. And when did you, when did it break ground? We broke ground on foundations uh, about four months ago. The project has been going on for about a year and a half in total. We have pre-development before that. What was there? We purchased uh, five and a half acres from the Steinway Piano Factory. So they have an 11 acre site in Astoria where they make pianos. And about half of the site was just old warehouses that they used to store wood. So if, if your grandmother bought a Steinway piano in the 50s, they would keep extra wood. So if she broke a piano leg, they could 
go in their files and find matching wood from the 50s and then craft the new light verb. So it wasn't the highest and best use for the land on that site. So we were able to purchase it. Sounds like they owned it for a long time. Over a hundred years. Yeah. They had been on the site forever. It's one of the few remaining large manufacturing businesses in New York City. They're still there making pianos. Wow. Who would have known? So a different existential question is this, is uh, nobody knows New York like you do. Just your take on, and you're sitting here in Sonoma as we speak, and I'm uh, adjacent to Oakland, and we're in two parts of the country that have seen probably the most amount of outflow. What do you see for New York? And not even necessarily just from a real estate perspective, but just in general, what do you, what do you see happening for Manhattan with all the people, New York, I guess the boroughs of people leaving and et cetera, et cetera. Superstar cities are not going away. And there are a lot of fundamental reasons for it. There's education, culture, amenities, a rich social life, uh, interest. I mean, all the reasons that people love cities are going to continue. But New York City is not well run. We have a incompetent mayor uh, by everybody's estimation, except his. And New York City's got a lot of challenges. Darwin is having a lot to say about COVID and its effect on businesses and the world. And I don't believe people are going to go back to offices in the way that they did before. Is that 25% of the office market is going to lose their occupants? Is it 50%? Who knows? It's significant. We're very over-retailed in New York City and in America. Retail is not going to come back. And we were very over-restauranted. Restaurants, it's been really painful, but we had too many restaurants to begin with. So New York is going to suffer a lot of challenges. I think ultimately it's going to become a more diverse, affordable city than it was before. It had particularly Manhattan become kind of like a playground for wealthy and tourists. So hopefully uh, with a new mayor, our city will be better run and over time it'll recover. But out of that recovery is going to come a lot of not only pain, but also a tremendous amount of opportunity. I mean, we have been busier than ever because we've been focusing on the areas where we can solve the biggest problems, right? So e-commerce and logistics with Amazon, for example, is is most of my focus on a daily basis. Hey, what do you think about uh, OAC and the Amazon deal in Queens and, and kind of summarizing that? Sure. I, I think it was sad because the number of jobs, quality jobs that could have been created in Long Island City and in New York City uh, by Amazon would have been transformative for that area. But Amazon and the state and the city completely bobbled community engagement. I mean, I'm a fourth generation New Yorker and um, we New Yorkers, like everywhere else, we, we want respect. And instead of Amazon coming in and sharing their plans and gathering community input and being respectful of people and their neighborhood, uh, they just, with total secrecy, went in like a tech company and uh, announced what they were going to do and just kind of wanted to push it on people. And that doesn't work anywhere. It didn't work there. And they got a terrible result. What Amazon is doing now in the office world, like Google and others, is instead of 
looking for benefits and making big announcements. They're simply buying and renting buildings and going back to work. So even though they don't have a nominal HQ2, Amazon has significantly increased their office footprint in New York City and will likely continue to. Uh, but I think in, in all these communities with change, we have to just, you know, realize that we've, we're part of a community and we need to be respectful and we need to make sure that we are creating something which is going to be better, not just for us and our occupants, but for the community that we're a part of. And, you know, we're working on that with the studio. It's, it's absolutely vital. Wow. That is awesome. So going back to 1989, your, your first year, you're making a hundred grand a year off the um, outlet center. And suffice it to say, here we are 30 plus years later, and you've done extraordinarily well. Are you any happier today than you were then? And what, what makes you the happiest? <laughs> I'm a lot happier today. I think, um, you know, we all have the potential for fulfillment and self-improvement. It's easier now than it ever has been, thanks to the internet and thanks to the, you know, a culture of people that are interested in that. But it's a matter of doing the work. And I've spent a lot of time. And if I were to think about my hobbies and interests, that's a big one. I've also just been really lucky. I mean, I've got a fabulous wife. Uh, and two incredible kids and a lot of interest and a circle of friends. And so I kind of think about where everything is today and I'm really grateful, really, I'm really grateful and excited. So it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily happier because you have more money or is that part of it? I mean, that's, that is an existential question. Listen, um, Seneca was the wealthiest person in the Roman Empire. So people think about stoicism, about having one pair of jeans and one pair of socks. That's actually not it. It um, Money doesn't hurt. And I don't mean a lot of money, but I mean enough money. And so at 29 or 30, when I achieved some financial security, so I knew I could pay my rent and I knew I could have health insurance and uh, I knew I could take vacations, life got a lot better. I think, you know, does it really matter on the margin for me personally? Uh, not particularly the, the, whatever money I'm making now, I'm, I'm, actually looking for ways to share and give away because that kind of impact is what drives me. It's more about the daily experience rather than thinking about, uh, you know, putting on a green eye shade and, you know, trying to have more, really, really trying to have more impact rather than, you know, trying to have more cash because as far as they know, you can't take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> Even Seneca. So what, what would be your definition of success? I think that, look, that's different for everybody. For me, really being excited about getting up in the morning and doing things which I love as much of the day as possible and editing out the things that I don't. And you know, being able to be, I get to wake up with my wife and my two dogs jumping all over me and going to have exercise and checking in with a couple of buddies and COVID every day and 
talking to my sons and um, solving interesting problems. So that's kind of it. And leading a healthy lifestyle, which I think is incredibly important because diet, exercise, meditation totally changes my outlook every day. How long do you meditate? I have a pretty active mind. And so the meditation that works for me, and I've tried the range is guided. And so I like headspace. So I subscribe to it and I put on my app and I get 10 minutes in the morning, first thing. uh, And I do it religiously. (laughs) That's the right way to put it. And I just love it. And it feels great. And then I exercise six days a week and uh, I lead a pretty plant-based lifestyle. So I try to eat pretty clean. And again, I, I reserve time for fun every day because I don't confuse activity with progress. When I think about where I contribute the most to my business, um, it's not working 70 hours a week. It's being thoughtful and strategic in the way that I can move the business along. What kind of exercise do you do? I really love lightweights, kind of you know body weight exercises. And I had a trainer in New York before COVID that I worked with three days a week with my wife. Now I do all kinds of videos. I love yoga. Strala yoga is kind of my go-to. So I put on a Tara video. Uh, and then I love walking. So I'll go out there and do on my Apple watch, 10 or 15,000 steps a day while I'm making phone calls or listening to podcasts. And so those, I'd say those are my three components. You got a nice balanced life. Well, I've exhausted myself with questions. I've enjoyed this uh, every bit as I knew I would. Very impressive. And and uh, you're not the guy to say, hey, continued good luck because you're, you're going to continue to do extraordinarily well. And it's been fascinating talking to you. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you for the time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. If, if I come up uh, one of these days, maybe we could have a lunch or something with uh, with our wives. That'd be great. We'll go for a walk. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> All, right. All right, Adam. Thanks a lot, man. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.